Do you know what the price to earnings ratio is at its current price in the 300s? 231, if my source is correct. That's insane. Yeah, you, but you can't use. I mean, no, you're sorry. just saying they're say Canadian. That. It doesn't matter. Numbers <laughs> no, don't matter <laughs> in Canada. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. What a time to be alive. It's a tough week in the market. It's been seven straight weeks going down, which hasn't happened in 20 plus years. Who is to blame for the market crash? Your, your favorite two words in the English language. Mean reversion yeah you know there's a a quote from jenny harrington this week she says scared not me not at all i'll tell you why this correction is mathematical valuations are rationalizing and mean reverting for transparent reasons this isn't the pandemic where we have no idea what will happen and we don't have hundred year old banks collapsing either this is a normal part of the cycle agree or disagree I, I agree. And it feels ridiculous. Like, I think that's the, that's the thing is like, uh, logically fully agree. And at the same time, let me drop a few summary uh, hits here. So at the same time, when you're having folks that are in the market right now, and they're feeling the worst four months start to a year since 1939, Great Depression times, yep. the worst start to a year for the bond market since 1842. That's, that's 19th crazy. century, right? Notre yeah. Dame University was founded in 1842. And that's the last last time that the bond market was this bad. We got the NASDAQ in a bear market, right, which is uh, 20%, you know, off, uh, off its highs. Yeah. And what would you guess if I said, what percent of US traded equities have lost 75% or more? Uh, maybe a quarter. That's right. One quarter, a quarter of all US equities. What's Bizarre, though, in this is that you have you have stats like this and going back to the Nasdaq in a bear market and the S&P 500 is trying to go into a bear market, but not quite, is that it's only 20 percent down. Yeah. But people, the people that are holding a lot of these, you know, what one's high flyers are feeling it so rough. I mean, so it's individual stocks getting crankety cranked, but the market itself is kind of in normal territory. It, like it is what, what Jenny was describing. This is pretty natural. The scary thing is what's been propping up the market, you know, keeping the balance of power that's keeping the market only down 20% versus a lot of stocks which have gone down more than a quarter. Like, I'll just throw out like the Microsofts and the Googles and the Apples kind of. I mean, if those decide to take a serious turn, uh, life gets more interesting. But this is normal. This happens. This is the cost of mission um in markets and i have had so much fun this week doogles so i was never know how to talk about this because i'm just wired differently i was watching stuff on thursday and friday and when it turned around on friday i was like yelling i was so frustrated because like janet i had a, a few buys i was ready to make happen and those stocks went up 10 percent in a day and it makes me mad i want the crash to continue i know you're looking for deals you're definitely looking for yeah. deals it's 
what is tough about markets like this is, well, a lot, right? Because investing is freaking hard. But what is tough, I think, about markets like this is you do have these stocks that are down 70%, 80%. But because the market is only down, when I say market here, I'll talk about S&P 500 is down what, like, I don't know, 15, 16% or something like that right now. Yeah. That is the, the average intra-year drawdown. So within one year from last peak uh, to trough is 14%. So where, when the market's at an average place, but you might have a couple, like some individual stocks you're looking at that are 70% down, you go, okay. So now what happens if the market decides to actually go down? Like if it, yeah. if it decides to do something that's not normal, like out of the normal, that 70% stock could easily be 80%, 90% down. And so that's, it's, it's, it's tough to know, you know, exactly where we are, but there's some stuff depending on your time horizon that I still think are at prices that even if they fall a whole bunch more, if you hold it for years. Well, let's get that out of the way to start. I mean, when we talk potential stock picks here, a time horizon is a key component. So if Dougal is salivating over something because he thinks in 10 years from now, it's going to be great. And another investor who listens to the pod has a seven month time horizon, like just disregard the conversation, guys. You might as well skip ahead because those are two entirely different things. Yep. I agree that some of that quarter of stocks that have gone down more than 75%, there's some interesting research opportunities there without a doubt. And I think you and I have a couple that make our same list, but what's jumping off the page to you? The one that I bring up all the time, right? you're probably sick of me always bringing this one up though, is Twilio. It's at a place for me, right? Because, and to you, the time horizon piece, like Twilio for me would be a very long-term hold. Like I'll put it in the bucket of forever hold. I mean, that's not a real time horizon, right? But it, but it's one that I wouldn't really have an immediate sell criteria for. And so the reason it's still expensive, right? Like the, the company hasn't become a self-sustaining, full self-sustaining business yet. It's not there, but it's the, the potential market dominance of it. It's one that if I bought it now and it dropped another 30, 40%, I'd buy it again. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that's very possible. And I know that's very possible, but I'd hold it for long enough that I, that that company will be in my mind, right? This is when I say will be, I just mean like my investment thesis will be 10 X larger than it is today at some point. I mean, it's still so early in it's a, uh, it's life cycle. Um, so that's why, I mean, I, I just keep buying it, but it's where it is, is no longer at a price that is absolutely ridiculous for me, which is where it's been. It's at yeah. like a, you know, a reasonable price for me. None of your valuation metrics would ever say that you should pick it up, but it's a different kind of, it's a diff different kind of buy. I want to let the people behind the curtain because we, as we texted this week and you threw out Twilio, I, I pulled it up and here, here's an exact quote. Company's been public nine years, constantly negative cash flows and massive share dilution. That's all you, buddy. Go for it. Uh, gobble, I want gobble. you. To be, yeah, I want you to gobble it up. I want you to be massively successful and I want you to talk trash about it for the rest of our lives. But that's all you, man. <laughs> it gets to the whole point of what we, uh, what we always talk about. You have to have investment philosophy to investor temperament, uh, et cetera. We, we just have such different views on things like this. But then to your point, there's some, sometimes that Venn diagram overlaps. It, it does overlap. It's wonderful. Yeah, so I wrote a, a mini blog post this week. I'd call it on... If a stock's down 80% in, say, six months or so, and there's a whole bunch of them out there right now, uh, one I was looking at is Roblox. Um, 
and I told this story a, a few weeks back. Like my son loves it, so we might buy some kind of as a joke for him. It's not a value stock. It yep. never will be. So that stock went from something like 134 to as low as I think $21 this week, right? Here's how I think about that methodology, but I'm curious for your thoughts, right? So if you start in the 130s and go to the 20s, the natural, the way the human brain works, if you still like the company as you go, this is a massive deal. I think where the human brain gets hijacked sometimes is assuming that 130 was ever a fair representation of things, right? And so the framework I use to kind of reset and figure out if 130 was ever clear is leaning on a consistent track record of profitability. And then at a high level, before you read the 10K and do your discounted cash flow analysis, like I'm going to start with, you know, price to earnings, price to cash flow metrics, right? So in this case, with Roblox specifically, when I go and try and look at strongly positive or free cash flows, they, they really don't exist yet. That's kind of the case in Twilio as well. That's where I start to go, man, I don't know if I don't know if 20 is fair. These aren't stocks that we're talking about here that are ones that you're valuing like that. Um, it's, it's a completely there's a story, right? We've talked about the narrative and the story and not, not as anything that's necessarily false, but it's a, it's a belief that you have to have around what's going to happen. Like that, that's what, that's what it's all about. Right. I mean, in- yeah. Well, and here, here's the tie in though. So if it's, uh, if it's Exxon Mobil, which I bought two or three years back yep. when oil prices were negative and there's a, this long, long track record and you're the stocks trading at 1998 prices or something in 2020, I'm going, I've seen them weather storms and get to the other side and print money. That I, I don't have any heartburn with that. In a case like Roblox, in a case like Twilio, in a case like Bitcoin and Diggles, I'm actually going to go there. When you see... Not just, hold on, hold the phone. Keep going. <laughs> hold the phone while you keep going. When you see something falling and falling rapidly and falling consistently over months and months and months, I'm always looking for the cash backstop. I'm always going, well, listen, if it's uh, if it's Makita Tools in Japan, like that, that stock can fall and fall and fall. But eventually, I know that the parts they make their tools out of are worth money and their manufacturing facilities are worth money. And if you add up all that stuff, like it can't fall to zero because they actually, that company has a clear net worth. I won't go there with Roblox and Twilio yet, but with Bitcoin... And and the other trash coins, I'll do the PC version. Trash coins. <laughs> uh, like, y- you go, where's the clear cash backstop? And that's why some of the crypto stuff, it, it just, it feels like it falls and it falls and it continues to fall. And there's no cash generating properties tied to it, which is why a lot of people call it speculation. So that's where... I'm when I say, hey, do you buy a stock down 80 or 90 percent? I'm going the only way I personally get comfortable with it is if I see a clear almost insurance behind it can't go this much lower. And the the stocks like the one I've been salivating over uh, recently is Facebook um, after the recent drop or meta. And you'll see that even when everything else is getting crushed, it kind of never bops below that 180 range because it starts to get so cheap that people just can't rationalize paying there. People can't let it go lower than that without being like, this is a screaming deal. 
in my opinion. I personally hope it goes way lower than that because I'll buy some or I'll buy some more. But one of the important things that uh, neither one of us is saying explicitly here, but and tell me if you agree with this or not, but this is what I'd say is the, the down 70%, down 80% doesn't matter at all. It goes back to your point. You were implicitly saying this when you were like, was 100 and whatever it was, $34, whatever. Was that yeah. ever a fair price? It, that price doesn't matter. It's not the fact the, if we just stick on like Twilio for a second, um, it's not the fact that it's down whatever, 70%, 80%. It's not the fact that it's down that far that makes it a deal in, in my view. It's that if, if Twilio does what it's trying to do to become the communication czar of the world, right? That is a multi-hundred billion dollar opportunity. Like in my, in, in, yes, in yeah. Google's view. And so if that's a multi-hundred dollar or billion dollar opportunity, then that stock being in the 15 to $20 billion range, which is the range that it's been trading in recently, is that's well worth it. Exactly. Right? Like it, it's the it. probabilistic outcome and your your one probability tied to like dominating that entire TAM exactly. total addressable market is like it can change the game. So yeah, my probabilistic outcomes are probably different in terms of I say there's probably a majority chance of the stock going to a price that might be double where it is today. Yours might say, oh, there's only a 10% chance of this happening. But if this happens, holy cow, I'm at the poker table and I just exactly I'm just raking it in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's the yeah, that's the thought process. I do think it's important for folks to to understand that point that it's the drawdown itself has nothing to do with with the the valuation it's it's that i the other point actually is that i just love when things go back to you were talking about 1998 right for exxon and some of these the growth stocks may not have that long of a track record right but when you're like okay if it's trading at the same thing that it was five years ago you first have to say was that a ridiculous price five years ago but then also what has that business done in the last five years like if it's invested in all of its infrastructure does a better sales and marketing engine um they have a better understanding of their company and you're telling me I can get it for a price that was five, six, seven years ago, whatever it might be. Like that's it's like it's worth researching. Like that becomes interesting. It still might exactly. be overvalued, but you think about, uh, I mean, the inflation tie and everything else. Like a dollar. We we talked about this with Twitter, which I think has been public for going on close to a decade, and it's basically at it's basically at IPO prices, but the user growth is a hundred times and the cash flows are way better. You know, like it's clearly a better company. Now you can say the IPO was mispriced or today's mispriced, or you can say Musk is crazy. So you can't assign a price to that because now he's backing out of the deal, Dougals. Well, but he might not be backing out of the deal at all. He might just want to pay less of his billions. He just wants what to he pay did less. is we're going to turn this into a catchphrase. I might have a t-shirt. He went to the spreadsheets, Dougals. He started looking at <laughs> yes. the spreadsheets. He said $44 billion is a lot of money. I'd rather pay like $35 billion. That sounds good to me. Exactly. I know. He, he, he popped it open. He did. He popped open his Google Sheets. <laughs> oh, it, okay. Wait, that's another thing. When we get Musk on the show, I am asking if he uses Google Sheets or Microsoft Excel. I need to know. <laughs> He's going to say numbers. No, he won't. He does not use numbers. He does not use numbers. All right. Should we, we have, we have uh, not even gone to the fishbowl yet. Is it fishbowl time? Wait, can I just say one more thing on this crazy yeah, yeah, valuation yeah, stuff? Go for it. Shopify 52 week high. And I want to just give you a hard time about this. $1,762.92. Currently, it's in the low 300s. Do you know? Do you know what the price to earnings ratio is at its current price in the 300s? 
231, if my source is correct. That's insane. Yeah, you but you can't use. I mean, you're sorry, just saying they're say Canadian. That. It doesn't matter. Numbers <laughs> no, don't matter <laughs> in Canada. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, basic. We you're talking about earnings, Skippy. We don't talk earnings on this show. This is a growth stock. Who cares about earnings? The the growth. <laughs> I okay. So first of all, I wouldn't say that exactly. I I do think that sometimes the price to earnings ratio is difficult to use, especially, you know, we talked about this with, um, with price to book before, but accounting, it's an accounting ratio, which is yeah, tough yep. when you, when you have businesses that have more intangible versus tangible assets, right? It becomes harder because you on one from this is about to get nerdy real quick, but in one type of business, right? You're depreciating that asset over time. The other business, it hits your P and L. So yeah. like, it's actually, it's difficult to, to look at a, a price earning. Now, when you're talking in the hundreds, it starts to, it starts to get, that's a little bit different, but, uh, but still it, it's hard to look apples to apples there. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, yeah, that got nerdy real quick. Let's say uh, price to sales, according to Morningstar was 9.3, which is also like borderline insane. I'm just saying Shopify, I use their product. I think it's freaking rad. Uh, it's still really, really expensive. So just because it came down from seventeen hundred to three hundred does not mean it's cheap. It ties to the same conversation, right? No, it, it really does. I actually, I think Shopify to me is interesting right now. You cut half of it off, which still, I think, in your um, in your world is probably still expensive. But but I think Shopify at half of its current price is for me where I would just get ridiculous with it. But yeah. between between half and now, it's still interesting to me. Like in the long term, it's at the point, it's hit the point now where it's worth looking at. Like that's where it is now. I wouldn't say it's a good deal right now, but it's hit the point where it's worth looking at and who knows what the future will hold. Agreed. All right. So what's in your fishbowl? There's so much more to tell you about. I don't know why this gentleman has gotten so much airtime on the show, but he's back. Our friend Garg from better.com. So the CEO of better.com, it's just like. I don't know if people just wake up and like their foot is on their nightstand and they just like the first thing they do is put it in their mouth. But it, just, it seems like he, that's all he knows how to do is make poor decisions. How do you become CEO? All right. Let me, let me get actually let me let me get to the meat of this and stop my, my diatribe. So, OK, so it came out recently that there was a cash infusion that Better.com took near the end of last year um, for one and a half billion dollars. And half of that he personally guaranteed. So $750 million personal liability from the CEO. How this came out was he wrote this email, which was leaked. He wrote this email to the company. I'm going to read the whole, uh, at least the blurb uh, that yeah. came out. It's a little bit long. Read the whole thing. I might be foolish, but I believe in us. I believe in you. I believe in our mission. I believe in our vision. And I believe that we are the only people on this planet who will do everything needed to make home ownership better, faster, cheaper, and make it possible. The only for, people? Yeah. And, <laughs> make it, and make it possible for everyone everywhere. I am fully committed with everything I own and will ever own. Five years from now, when, saw, when that SoftBank $750 million loan comes due around my 50th birthday, if it means I have nothing, well, at least we have given it a real shot. This is true. I did personally guarantee three quarters of a billion dollars and I'm personally liable for it. Okay. The personal liability piece on its own 
do, do your thing, whatever you want with your own money, but I'm going to call it ridiculous. But then what I also loved is so in this, in this quote, he's talking about, I believe in you. You're the only people you're amazing. The people he's firing, by the way, but he says this, right. I believe in you. And then <laughs> this is terrible. But so in, uh, in India, um, they had some Indian, um, they went to some Indian employees and they said, we're going to offer you money if you decide to leave, right? Because it's like a voluntary separation thing. We'll, yeah. we'll offer you money if you decide to leave. 90% of people <laughs> said that they wanted to take them up on it. So he's like, I believe in all of you. You're the only people that can do this. And they're like, well, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. And nine out of 10 of his employees that have the opportunity are like, peace. Yeah. You've leveraged yourself to the hilt. I don't even know where the hilt is, but that's where he's leveraged himself to and said, you are the people that need to do this. And like the belief in him, it, it's, it's as if he can't, he doesn't understand this to a certain extent. How you better know that it's going to work out. Like you better know that it's going to work out and your company's not about to walk out on you if you're going $750 million in a debt. Yeah, good luck, man. I, um, <laughs> a lot of founders, I assume he's the founder. I actually forget because better.com is not my favorite thing. But a lot of founders are crazy, and that leads to their success. And so um, I'm sure he took some big bets along the way. Um, and he probably just feels like it's a continuation of that. Yeah, it's the we've talked about Musk and his big bets right before. And there are many founders that you um, you take huge bets right to make it happen. Like you bet the company for the next the next bit. The, the thing here, aside from just that fact, is like risky. The thing here is that you, you never know if it's going to work. So maybe when I said you better know it's going to work is the wrong thing. You never know if it's going to work, but you better at least know that your employees are on your side. You know, like you better at least know that like we're giving it a shot. This just seems like he's taken out a loan at the same time that he's basically both complimenting and giving a middle finger, middle finger to his employees. Like it's just, well, a, it's weird. Yeah. I mean, let me follow up and make sure I understand your point there. So if you make a huge bet with your own personal, uh, I call it security almost in terms of that debt, and you say you're betting on the company, which really means your employees, and then there's a mass exodus of your employees, you clearly misjudged <laughs> some part of that equation. I think so. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. You what, know, are you who else is, what is he betting on? <laughs> You know who else misjudged some things, in my opinion? Go on. Our boy, friend of the show, Michael Saylor. <laughs> He's got fire in his eyes, though. He's got fire in his eyes. All right. Say more about Bitcoin, it. Bitcoin uh, trading around $30,000. If you're not a total nerd or a crypto holder, you probably have no idea. So that's it's around a 53% decline. When it dropped below $30,700 per coin... MicroStrategy actually went underwater with their Bitcoin purchase. So, Dougal's, as, as uh, longtime listeners of the show will know, Michael Saylor has, I think his favorite quote is, um, oh, how's it go? It's like, buy Bitcoin, and then when you figure out Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin, and then take out debt to buy Bitcoin, to buy more Bitcoin, and then buy some more Bitcoin. Like, something, I'm paraphrasing there. His life motto is yep. buy Bitcoin, right? Yep. He runs a it's actually like a analytics software company called MicroStrategy that 
had been pretty successful and was a fairly impressive company and stock. Now that stock is entirely based on the movements of Bitcoin because he has taken loan after loan, basically every amount of cash that's available to him out in debt to buy Bitcoin. He currently owns about 130,000 Bitcoins. So he's underwater as it is. And if according to what their CFO said on a a phone call a few months back, if Bitcoin drops to around $21,000, they're going to get a margin call. Company's basically over. What do you have to say to our friend, Michael? Same thing I had to say to him a year ago. Like, what do you, what exactly are you doing and why are you doing it? It's very similar in that, like, you're just leveraging yourself up that there's only one to the point where there's only one like happy path. That's what's hard. It's the, you know, the whole, like, uh, make sure you stay in the game thing that we've talked about before. Yeah. And, you know, William Green brought up, it's like, you, you got to make sure you can stay in the game. And when, when you make such big bets on the potential death line, I mean, you just make sure you're, hope you're in the spreadsheets. You know what I mean? Like make sure your calculations are on point. I mean, on top of that, uh, with, with all the crypto trading 24 seven and it being like we talked about an asset that's not directly tied to cash flows. I mean, it starts off more volatile and then, yeah, it, it might go to $21,000 on Sunday night at 3 a.m. because of a variety of factors that don't exist in the same way with your typical stock market being open during working hours and that there's like less hysteria there. So as soon as he gets that margin call, I mean, I'm not his CFO. I haven't read through the documentation, but the company's over, uh, I believe. And why is he... So we know how convicted he is. You're totally right. We told him six to nine months ago, this was a dumb idea from our perspective. Who cares? He doesn't have to listen to us. But do you think there's any chance of him reconsidering? Because effectively, since he bought, it was always pretty significantly above that 30K uh, threshold. So he had room to breathe. Now that it's consistently hovering in the 30, 29,000, it went as low as 26,000 this week. Uh, do you think there's any thought shot that he'll say, I actually don't want to sacrifice my company and my employees on this crazy bet? I think there's a fiduciary responsibility that he probably, at least behind the scenes, has to try and set up something so the company doesn't fall apart. I mean, he's to your point, he, this company is like going on 30 years old, 25 years old, something like I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's been around for a while. So nice he's margins. Exactly. He's an operator. So it's not like he just came out of the woodwork and, you know, is trying to get the volcanoes like Bukele down in El Salvador, trying to get the volcanoes to fuel Bitcoin. Like it's not that's not his whole thing. He's actually trying to make money, I think, for this org. And so I can see behind the scenes where he does try and figure out like how to back it. But I but he's come out so hard about betting on Bitcoin that his public persona like we will probably never see it. And that's actually an interesting point. You know how um, Musk with certain cryptocurrencies like Dogecoin can really move the market. Yep. I think if Sailor hedged or backed out, he could actually really move the market in a negative way because yep. Yep. as the story goes, or as he told it back in 2020, when everyone started working from home, MicroStrategy's 
revenue streams continued and their expenses went down significantly. He was sitting on all this cash. He was worried about inflation and everything else. And so he started looking for alternative asset. Now, Dougal's, this ties to my point, which also I've been laughing about this week, is uh, cryptocurrency and specifically Bitcoin as an inflation hedge. <laughs> can I pull up a quote for you while you laugh? How can that still be a claim? It. How could that still be a claim? Okay. This is a quote from Concordia on Twitter. Bitcoin is a great inflation hedge because it's down 40% during the most substantial inflationary period in decades. It's just math. What is the definition of a hedge in that, in that case? I also, um, I, did it, I did it last week, actually. I plotted a Bitcoin against QQQ uh, mm. starting basically a year-to-date graph. Now, they were nearly on top of each other, Douglas. I'm not saying that's been the case historically. I know short-term samples are biased and everything else. So I'm not making a strong conclusion here other than it's fascinating. They were like week by week, some cases day by day, performing in exactly the same way. I don't know what to say about that. Except that yeah, it's, you want to say I told you so. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. You just you said it for me, so I don't have to. The, the big point here, I think, is, at least in my mind, debt is the great unwinder. We've got our friend Garg we're talking about. We've got leveraging to buy Bitcoin. The, I was reading this week about the, more about what we said nine months ago around buy now, pay later. Apparently, here's one stat that I read. In California, 91% of all consumer loans issued in 2020 were buy now, pay later loans. And the thing with these types of loans, at least with, especially when you talk about younger populations, is they are mostly additive. They're not replacing other debt. It's not like, again, especially with younger populations. It's not as if you're saying, I would have bought this on a credit card, but instead I'm doing buy now, pay later. So actually it's cheaper. It's I would not have bought this otherwise. And now I am buying it. That's not always the case. But I think with the, the Gen Z pop, which is where buy now, pay later is really taken off. I think that that is the case. Like they're just buying things they wouldn't have bought um, otherwise. And there's a couple more stats. 43% of Gen Z users have missed at least one payment, according to a poll. 30% have missed at least two payments, according to a, another survey by Credit Karma. It's not good. And this is where when, the, when Bear goes to crash is when positions start getting unwound that we can't even see out there in the market because of leverage go back to mr huang that we talked about you know a year ago too yeah. it's just and there's so much of this stuff that when you when the spreadsheets come a calling the stocks they go a falling <laughs> okay there's two things i'm just not sure about but i i don't have great information on first is the pitch with like jack dorsey when he bought afterpay the australian based buy now pay later uh company was Gen Z's don't like credit cards. Credit cards are predatory, yet that sort of debt financing still could potentially serve a purpose. And so I just don't know. I've heard the the pitch otherwise, Dougal's. There's not necessarily they weren't going to buy it, and now they're using debt to buy it. I th I guess I'd just say I don't know that. I don't think that's like fully settled. Do you? Yeah, and I, I don't have I don't have stats on that either. But it just it, to me, it makes sense given the populations we're talking about.
because like Gen Z, because they're younger, like they're generally not going to have high credit limits and the ease at which, let me back up for a second. I think that the buy now and pay later stuff is like the, um, the product. I, I do think can serve a really good purpose, but we're so like, it's so nascent that I don't think we put the protections in place for folks. And so you go over here and you use Afterpay and you buy this thing and then you go over there and you, you buy whatever else you're buying on, you know, using a firm and the ledger when you're not sophisticated enough, you're not keeping like your, your ledger well-balanced. And so I think people can more easily get into multiple forms of debt that they didn't realize they could get into. And that's different than if they just like got the one credit card they might be able to get because they're 19 years old. You know, I, I think that that's kind of what they mean or what I mean. And so I don't have the stats on it, but my belief would have to be with the younger populations that people are buying stuff because it seems easy, right? It's quote unquote, technically free. I like the approach. What I don't know is, I mean, behind the scenes uh, with buy now, pay later and Afterpay and um, oh, I'm trying to think of all the other names, Klarna, I think they're doing the same protection mechanisms that getting three or four credit cards for a 19-year-old would do, but it's a developing market and it's probably not sophisticated. When you say someone misses a payment, you give some stats there. That means because my understanding of buy now, pay later is you had to give them like a, a checking account, basically, where they could debit the funds from over the course of the next several months. Does that mean they go to the checking account and there's an overdraft? I, I would assume so, but I don't know. I'm not, sure, and okay. I'm, I'm not sure if that's the way that it works um, everywhere. And to the, to the credit card point, you're absolutely right. But you have to like apply for that credit card. You know, I mean, there's, there's a bit more friction. I'm not saying it's an aggressive amount of friction, but there's a bit more friction that comes with the credit card. Whereas here, you're just on the the checkout site, and you basically like click and like create an account. I mean, that's the it's a it's it's a bit different. And I don't I don't want to be I'm not a hater for buy now pay later. Um, I'm just more so saying yeah you you heard Spent that lyrics over there <laughs> you heard that because um, again I think the mechanisms are actually pretty useful. It's just that it's like it's really nascent and it's easy to be abused. Like that, that's all, that's all that I'm saying. And this whole, but debt, debt is the, like more debt and more debt and problem. more, more ways to get into debt is, is an issue. Right, I'll tell you. Yeah, I actually won't go there. So let's talk. Let's just see how long we can hold your interest with Terra USD and the Luna coin and anchor and complex financial derivatives that appear to not work when there's a run on the bank. Are you bored yet? Keep going. Okay. I'm not going to be able to articulate this uh, fully on the pod at like the at the ground level. So we're going to keep it high level. But I've read a bunch of articles about Terra USD. So I'll, I'll bet going into this week, Dougals, you didn't even know what Terra USD was. Is that true? I'm actually not sure if I did or not. <laughs> so, okay. so, so probably no. I think, the, I think so, you're right. An algorithmic stablecoin that leverages another crypto coin called Luna, and in one way, another interest-generating coin called Anchor. This happens a fair amount where you do like a subset of a coin ecosystem, and they all tie together in a way that is pitched as beneficial in the white paper. The thought here at the highest level is that Terra USD was always going to be worth $1 of uh, one US dollar, but it's on blockchain, right? 
And so with other stable coins, they call them, what the companies say they do, and there's some debate to if they actually do this, is if I give them a hundred bucks of US currency, they take that hundred bucks and they invest it in something incredibly safe like short-term treasuries. And so it's backed by a dollar. The pitch with Terra was totally different. It was that we can use math and complex financial derivatives to keep this coin worth a dollar. And the simplest way they did that, based on my understanding, like I haven't read the white paper, I've just read the Wall Street Journal and New York Times breakdowns, is at any point, if I own Terra USD, I am allowed to convert that to $1 worth of Luna. And what that means is if for a brief moment in time, Terra USD, or what, what they thought that meant, I should say, if it, at a brief moment in time, if Terra USD is worth 99 cents, me as a investor, I put that in quotes, would be like, oh, I'll buy that for the discount and then I'll convert it to $1 worth of Luna. And then that Luna is, I can sell it for a real dollar. So like I, there's an arbitrage. arbitrage. Yeah, yep. right. And historically that had worked pretty well, but effectively what happened here is there was a run on the bank where you have negative suppression of both of those assets at the same time. And so if they're both falling rapidly, when I say, oh, Terry USD is worth 75 cents and I'll, I'll cut to the cho- chase, it, it went as low as 23 cents this week, which is catastrophic for the entire pump purpose of holding a so-called stable coin to preserve your wealth from a market downturn in crypto. Because if, if Bitcoin's gone down 50% and all the other kinds, coins have gone down more than 50% and you're like, I'm not ready to play there. I want to go in a stable coin and sit this one out and your stable coin goes down 77%. It's a big problem. And it's a, it's a big problem for the entire community. I just, I don't even get it. Why would you buy this outside of the arbitrage? Well, like no, skip the arbitrage. Like, I, what, what the heck is the point? Well, the, the point is I, I own 10 Bitcoin at, 60k each but then i think bitcoin's going down but i'm not ready to get out of crypto so i'm going to take that the worth of my bitcoin which in that example would be six hundred thousand dollars i'm going to put it in a stable coin so i can preserve it six hundred thousand dollars regardless of the movement of my other coins and then i'll go back into crypto and i'll go back into bitcoin at 30k so the point is that you don't want to hold us dollars and because in a lot of cases, last it's tough I checked, to convert. Last I checked, a U.S. dollar is also worth one U.S. dollar. Yes, Tugles, you're asking the the really um, <laughs> the really good questions here <laughs> that maybe <laughs> not all in the crypto community was asking. It. I have been told. Listen, I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars of crypto holdings. Um, I have been told it can be very tough to take massive gains. Uh, from crypto in back into the U.S. financial system, so I think the stable coins try and uh, fill a gap there. Okay. Uh... Yeah, you're, you're bored <laughs> and want to move on. <laughs> Point being, it's people have tried this a thousand times before crypto, and I'm sure they will continue to try it on blockchain. It's basically never worked. Creating an algorithmic stablecoin where you adjust, like they would burn some currency, 
some coins when demand was greater than supply, and then they'd allow that cash redemption when uh, demand was less than supply. It doesn't work. And an individual on Twitter wrote a breakdown of basically how to game the system to make money about three weeks ago. If you believe the rumors, that's exactly what happened here. And it could have been backed by Blackstone, which is a whole nother. I mean, there's going to be a movie made about this. Some big investors appear to have made millions and millions of dollars. And probably the mom and pop guys are the ones that got screwed. But there's many takeaways here. And one goes back to debt. Another goes back to how much of the Wild West crypto still is. Because the people that bought this, Dougals, like with your logic there, like why would I even want this? Or what does it mean? I'd guess 90% of them had no idea that this stable coin was different than the other stable coins that today are still worth a dollar per coin. All right, what's next? I got one thing in my fishbowl that's left here. And it's a, it's a Substack post on endless metrics. So it's endlessmetrics.substack.com. The title of this post is When Buying the Dip Doesn't Work, an analysis of the dot-com crash. This gets back to something you brought up a whole bunch of around what, uh, what the NASDAQ did back at the dot-com crash when it crashed 80 plus percent, right? Um, 83%, I think, in total. The thing that, uh, the breakdown that happened in this, this post, which I thought was most interesting, is the premise of buy the dip, buy the dip, buy the dip, and then someone even looking at this dip and like the dip uh, back in the dot-com and going, well, that's, that's a great dip too. I would have bought that dip. And what this person's saying is, yeah, you might have, but it's really painful. Like the amount of pain that you then had to, to sit through is pretty intense. Here, here are the, the key stats from this post that I thought were most fascinating. So if you bought at the top, you would have had to wait 16 and a half years to get back your investment. And, and also, if you, if you waited that 16 and a half years, there would have been an 83% drop along the way, like we just said. If you bought 20% down, so like about where we are right now, right-ish, yeah. right? If you bought 20% down and said, all right, I'm by the dip, you would have had to wait 14.2 years and a 78% drawdown. If you were more patient and said, 20% down, that ain't no dip, and bought 40% down, you would have had to wait 11.8 years and another 71% drop. And if you, if you were the, the mother of all dip buyers, like Senor Paciencia and bought after it was down 70%. You still would have had to wait two and a half years and had another 42% drop. <laughs> the point here, we don't know what we're in right now. Who knows? It could, it could end tomorrow. We could keep going down. But the point is that if, if you've bought, like Bill Gurley said, if you've, if you've been investing over the last five to 10 years, Buying the dip was really successful because everything was up and to the right. Eventually, it didn't take that long to get to get back and up and to the right. But if you look at history, you just need to be willing. It doesn't mean that it's wrong to buy the dip, but you should be willing and have the stomach to sit through time and drops. So like buy it and just let it sit. Right. That's that's the thing that that's kind of what it, that, I'm not saying to buy it and let it sit. I'm saying if you're going to buy it, then like you just need to like just let it sit because it could take well, a long time. 
Yeah, no, see, I have a slightly different takeaway, and you served this up on a platter for me. This is my original point about when to buy an 80% drawdown and when to not. This analysis is done with QQQ, which don't have, they're genuinely your high flyers. They don't have the same cash backstop that um, everything else has. So earlier in this episode, Dougals, you said, I think we we're talking about Shopify or Roblox or whatever. Like, we were talking about Roblox. Like, was 130 fair? We don't know. Is twenty bucks fair? We don't know. But you can actually like start doing the research and figuring out which is which has a cash backstop, right? And the QQQ stuff, especially the valuations from six months ago, they don't. A eighty percent drawdown is feasible. Um, so I'd say the stats you gave are great, but if it, each of those times you do some analysis on how that ties to cash flows, how that ties to profitability, how that ties to revenue generation, growth potentials, you can start to say, this is reasonable, or there's upside here, or I have margin of safety. And I don't know, I guess I'm just a boring value investor, though. Uh, yeah, it's just it's just different strokes for different folks. I I agree with your your statements. I think like, I think that that's a, a respect, maybe I should say that I respect like that viewpoint and completely understand that viewpoint. It's just different types of investing. And I wouldn't put this into the speculation category. It Well, it depends. Because in my view, speculation is more of a, um, like it, it is a pure bet on happenstance, yeah, right? Yeah. There has to be something behind the investment be besides just like a bet, meaning that there's some macro view that you have on the world and the positioning with an organization could fit into that and belief in the management team. Like there sure. just has to be something which is more of a, an investment for speculation, but I, I completely respect that. Yeah. All right. Last thing in my fishbowl, I could do the one minute rant or the 10 minute rant. You tell me, Oh man, Brian Armstrong, CEO of Coinbase. He just, he really ruffled my feathers this week. He almost pulled a Chamath, but I, I started off like, like I have nothing against Brian Armstrong. He seems like a nice guy. He yeah. runs a charity called Give yeah. Crypto. Like he, he seems like there's a lot of uh, good guys, but today or this week, he kind of got out over his skis, in my opinion. How do I say this nicely, Deagles? I think that was the nice way to say it. Okay, good. So the first thing he did is he quoted Buffett, and and then it didn't really tie to that. And I think that set me over the edge. And then he did three more things this week. So we, we've talked a lot about stocks down 80%. In the past six months, Coinbase is down 80.3%. Now, why is it down 80.3%? I'd say there's at least three factors. One is uh, competition is crazy. So a year ago, if I was a US-based investor and I wanted to buy some Bitcoin, Coinbase was one of the few options out there. And if I wanted to buy a hundred bucks of Bitcoin, they might charge me $3 to do that. And those fees seem ridiculous if you're used to equities investing, but they, they were kind of the only game in town. Now, if I want to do that same thing, I can do it on the cash app. I can do it on Venmo. I can do it on PayPal. I can do it on Robinhood. I mean, should I continue? I can do it on strike. I can do it on strike for zero fees. I can do it on Robinhood for 0 0.05 or something. I mean, basically zero fees. The competition has changed drastically, in my opinion. That's one reason the stock is down. Another reason the stock is down is just caught up in the massive headwinds of all these other companies we just talked about that don't have strong cash flows, 
and Coinbase actually makes some money. The reason they make some money is because they charge those ridiculous fees. Almost all the revenue is generated by those transaction fees. Well, you know what else happens when crypto falls off a cliff? People buy less crypto because they don't think it's a golden ticket to wealth anymore. They actually get scared. And some of them who lose a significant amount of money are never coming back. So, Dougals, I know you have frustrations with the Robinhood transactional-based business model. Coinbase, in a lot of ways, is Robinhood for crypto. And crypto is more volatile. And I think their fees are going to get just... I think their fees have gotten overrun with competition. You haven't even gotten to the most egregious thing that Brian Armstrong did. I'm getting there. Go for it. No, you go. I want you to, you're, you're hot right now. Keep going. Keep spitting. Then in their most recent filing, they added a new section. And the important part of this section says, moreover, because custodial held crypto assets may be considered to be property of a bankruptcy bankruptcy estate in an event of bankruptcy the crypto assets we hold in custody on behalf of our customers could be subject to bankruptcy proceedings and such customers could be treated as our general unsecured creditors we'll pause for translation there if we get into trouble we take in yo's yeah we're, we're taking your crypto the crypto that we hold as a custodian for you now, listen, I don't know if Fidelity and Vanguard, I don't know if they say something like this, like we're taking uh, Skippy's equities. I should do some research, but I sure hope not. Then on top of that, so then I got to find his quotes. Then he goes off on a tangent about how the company is never going bankrupt and starts throwing out anti-fragile uh, terminology that pissed off Taleb, who coined anti-fragile and wrote the book. I mean... Again, I can give you the 10-minute rant here, Dougals, but just this guy had a rough week. Let's just say it. The number one way to lose someone's confidence is to aggressively tell them that something is not going to happen that they didn't fear in the first place. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Like, if I, if I, found... I came to you if I came to you and I was like, I'm never going to rob your house, Skippy. Never. Never going to happen. You're like, why the... like? <laughs> Now the only thing I think that's going to happen is you're going to rob my house. You've been thinking a lot about robbing my house, haven't you? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So here's what he did. After after the street freaks out about that new disclosure, which seems a little shady, he does a tweet storm. His tweet storm says, there was some noise in a disclosure we made in our 10Q today about how we hold crypto assets. And then this, oh man, someone's talking about stealing your money. And they do the too long, didn't read. Your funds are safe at Coinbase, just as they always have been. Well, then why is the freaking disclosure say they're not safe, buddy? Then point two is we have no risk of bankruptcy. However, the new factor is based on an SEC requirement called SAB 122. He goes into the throw behind the lawyers. Okay, every company has a risk of bankruptcy. To say you have no risk of bankruptcy... It's what you're talking about. It means he's stealing everything from my house. And it means he's clearly thinking about it. So because Lyft was getting smashed, right, after their earnings report, too. He didn't have all these tweet storms. He didn't go into all that. He didn't write, you know, an essay or anything. He just said, we don't like it. That, that, was, his, that, that was his defense. <laughs> like, you don't like it. We don't like it either. And we're going to try and make it better. 
right? Like that is straightforward. Yeah. And there, I mean, Brian Armstrong says some of those things, but effectively, I think, I think he brought this up the day of the disclosure. I think, uh, the company PR brought it up the day after and the day after that, like, it's one of those things. If it's no big deal, you don't have to talk about it, but if you keep trying to defend it, you're almost digging yourself a deeper hole. And I'm more concerned. I mean, again, I don't hold, uh, much of my wealth in crypto or in kind Coinbase. So it doesn't, it's not going to impact me, but it, it's not something that I think was handled appropriately. And it's very frustrating. Um, if it is what it is, it is what it is. And if I'm in Brian Armstrong's shoes, I'm saying we do have a risk of bankruptcy. Every company does, but here's what we're doing to ensure that we don't go bankrupt and your assets are fully safe here. And here's what our runway looks like. And here's how much cash we have on hand. And here's how we can weather a storm, even if Bitcoin goes to $5,000. Like lay out those in an investor presentation that says our company is on solid footing. Just be like, oh, too long, didn't read. Nothing to worry about here. Ha ha ha. No, that's exactly it. I mean, it's not that I was necessarily considering Coinbase as an investment anyway, but now there's absolutely no chance. Like I, I've lost confidence in my like ability to believe and believe that there's going to be transparency there because you're exactly right. When you say there's nothing to see here, all I want to do is look like <laughs> Yeah. And, and when you go, oh, well, but look at our cash position and our revenue growth. Uh, it's really strong. Well, that's true. But what if the service that you charge $3 for is actually worth three pennies now? Th that's my hypothesis. Now, the Coinbase bulls, some of them yelled at me on Twitter this week, will tell you that they have a AWS for crypto services and all this other junk that's going to be amazing, which they might. It might be a great long-term play. But I know right now, almost all their revenues and therefore almost all their profits comes from fees that I don't think are sustainable. And the stock's down 80%. And crypto, NTFs, everything. I mean, there's a breakdown on NTFs this week. NFTs, Dougal, sorry. The, no one's trading the things anymore. It, there was another example of someone listing something they thought was worth $2 uh, million. And the top bid was $210. I mean, that's just... I think people have realized the gimmick or maybe they just had to do their own personal spreadsheets and they're like, you know what? I don't have $2 million to spend on JPEGs anymore. Silliness doesn't go on forever. Yeah. And there's just a bunch of silliness, right? We've been talking about silliness for 18 months now. Like there's so, there's so much silliness out there. Now this is when, uh, you know, the naked people in the forest that Warren Buffett talks about, this is when it, this is when it becomes real clear. I mean, it's, this is, this is, this is the stuff. And I still do think that it's fascinating. Who knows why I don't want to, you know, I can't look too much into this because you never know, but I do think it's fascinating that Berkshire is deploying so much capital right now. Like that is an interesting, it's really, really interesting. I mean, tens of billions of dollars where they've just been sitting around like for quite a while. I don't know what, the, I don't, again, I don't know what that means, but I think, I think it's really, really interesting. It means there's some deals to be had. And it the one thing I'm frustrated frustrated with myself about is we talked through on the show how I had consistently held some uh, intermediate to long-term bonds that I got out of, uh, I don't know, six to 12 months ago because the writing on the wall was pretty obvious that we rates were as low as they were ever going to be. Inflation was 
rising and therefore they were going to have to raise rates, which was going to hurt those holdings. And you talked about it at the start of the show. Worst bond market since 1982. Or, sorry, <laughs> 1842, baby. Uh, worst bond market since 1842. So I made the right call there. But what I should have done with some of that allocation is just thrown it at Brookshire as a bond replacement in a market like this because he lives for these situations and he's doing exactly what you and I are doing. He's finding some deals out there and he just has more capital to allocate to it than I do. Maybe not Dougal's, but he has a little more than Skippy, just a little more. Yeah, they, they leave me off that Forbes list just because I don't I don't like to have a... <laughs> I don't like to be exposed. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting, man. But there are, this is, again, who knows what the market's going to do. And we quoted Buffett a week or two ago talking about he, he and Charlie were like, we don't know what the market's going to do, but they look at individual companies and their individual, potentially individual deals that sit out there, regardless of what the market ends up doing, depending on your time horizon. Yeah. And HP, which I picked up recently, was very, very interesting. Um, it was almost in deep valued territory. It was a shareholder yield stock. Um, and of course, now it got the bump, it, the Buffett bump, and it's probably not in the deal territory, but that was showing up on some of my screens. Dougals, I'll leave you with one thing unless there's anything else on your uh, agenda. So we talked stable coins and the, the buzz going around. Uh, the smart circles right now is there's a new stable coin. It's actually not new. It's been around forever. There's only one stable coin that we can trust. Got any ideas? I mean, I can't even name, I can't even name the stable coin you talked about 15 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, but you can name this one. It's the Costco dollar 50 hot dog and soda <laughs> combo. That's the stable coin that you ride or die with Dougals. All right. I believe that it's not going anywhere. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody, for uh, listening. Uh, SkippyGoogles.com, yeah, one-stop shop. Definitely. Hit us with a review wherever you listen to the podcast. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys.